Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. 31 people killed in shootings this past weekend, both in El Paso, Texas and Dayton, Ohio. President Trump spoke about the violence, calling for unity and blaming violent video games, mental illness and hate. Also, two countries have warned its citizens against traveling to certain U.S. cities. Is the U.S. even safe to travel to these days? And last week there were meetings between the Hamilton 100 Commonwealth Games Committee and visiting members of the International Commonwealth Games Federation. How did it go? Well, we'll tell you. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The story, uh, not just here but right around the world, is gun violence once again. I know it's, it's, it's very, very frustrating to be talking about this. But, I mean, it's happening on a it's consistently and, and sadly frequent basis. 31 people killed in shootings this past weekend in El Paso and Dayton, Ohio. Uh, Donald Trump, of course, spoke about the violence, uh, calling for unity, blaming violent video games and mental illness and hate. Uh, didn't mention much about uh, access to firearms as, as part of the reasons for the problem. But it's not just a United States problem. Uh, there were 13 shootings in the Toronto area alone this past weekend. Another shooting in the west end of Hamilton this past weekend. And, of course, uh, we add on to that, of course, the tragic death of a young Hamilton man last Monday who was shot to death in his own home. What is happening and why are we wringing our hands but apparently not doing a whole lot about this? Well, we're pointing fingers at each other, but we don't seem to be solving the problem at all. Michael Tobe Jones has said, Michael, of course, is with Troy Media, syndicated columnist and Washington Times contributor, and always a welcome guest on The Bill Kelly Show. Michael, good morning. How are you today? I'm good, Bill. How are you doing? Great. Uh, great to be back after a couple of weeks off. Sadly, I've been following the news that's been going on over the last little while. Yeah. Uh, this is, is this becoming just white noise to us, Michael? I mean, I know we get upset about this. We hear the, the, the old cliche, thoughts and prayers for the victims and their families, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Right. But we're not moving the ball ahead very much here. No, uh, it's a tough issue, I agree, and, you know, obviously you're right. A lot of people have been saying the same thing about how horrible it is, you know, how awful it is, how things need to change, or they lay blame at, the, at people's different feet. They lay blame at, uh, say, U.S. President Donald Trump and others. What's really the problem is because if you just look at people's phone, man, this is an obvious point, Bill, Gun violence has been occurring long before Donald Trump ever became U.S. president. So to say that he has suddenly changed the parameter or that the goalposts have moved in a certain direction, I'm sorry, that's just not true. What is happening, though, is we're seeing a lot more frequency in terms of the amount of gun violence, which also extends into both um, Barack Obama's presidency and George W. Bush's presidency. And again, I don't think we should necessarily blame either of them for this. But a lot of things are not being resolved. Now, I think something is starting to happen, at least in the U.S. anyway. The New York Post on their front cover over the weekend had basically a screaming headline saying that assault weapons need to be banned. The New York Post, for people who don't know, is a right-of-center newspaper in the U.S., and that's pretty rare to see. Mm -hmm. but, it's a, but it's a sign that people are starting to get frustrated with what's happening. And, you know, you can also use, for example... When Mr. Trump came out and talked about the fact that, you know, that hatred is unacceptable in the United States, things need to be fixed. And yes, while he mostly did blame things such as video games and other components without mentioning guns, I agree with that, at least what he's trying to do, which I think is accurate, is he's trying to push the conversation maybe not as directly towards guns as they possibly can, because again, it's a major issue in the U.S., as I'm sure we'll talk about but also some of the systematic problems that are also happening at the same time, which do contribute to it, not just because I'm saying it, because you say it, because others say it, but experts are saying it also, that it's all kind of part of the same puzzle. But yes, I think things have to be moved, and I think people on the left and even now on the right are starting to realize that no matter what their position is in terms of of gun rights or gun control or whatever they believe in, they realize that things have to change, and they have to change quickly. And you were wise to also include Toronto as well, where there were, just in Toronto itself, there were 11 gunfire attacks. No one is blaming Justin Trudeau for the increase of gun violence in Canada, and nor should they, much the same way they'd be wrong to blame any prime minister who was sitting in office or previously sat in office 
for this. It's now become a societal problem, and we have to deal with it. Well, exactly. And and I understand where people are coming from with Trump. I mean, I'm not a fan of the guy. You and I have talked about that many times. Yes. Uh, and I do think that there are certain elements where he does incite violence. But However, and hatred and intolerance. But, <laughs> but... That's that may be the catalyst, but the concern here and the cure has to be of the weapons that are available to people that are uh, inclined that way. And mental health does come into it. Certainly, it does in many instances. But the, yeah. the, and I know that guns have been around for the longest time. We can talk about the constitutional, the Second Amendment rights here, Michael. Right. But the fact is, automatic weapons you can kill a lot more people a lot faster uh, than you could back a hundred years ago if, if you decided to take a gun and settle something that you thought had to be settled. Yeah, I agree with you absolutely. And that's why when a lot of people, when they're, they've been blasting away also at the NRA, the, you know, the gun lobby in the U.S., which, you know, everyone has a difference of opinion about, you know, I believe in gun rights. I've said this many times. I still do to this example. It's, it's to me, it's an issue of personal property and private, you know, and private property rights as well. And, but I do agree with a lot of people that the NRA sometimes takes things way, way too far. But it's interesting that everyone is forgetting when they discuss this that the NRA a few years ago had even made a move against assault weapons, at least in terms of what we call bump stocks. Now, for people who collect guns, they know what bump fire stocks are. They're basically these stocks that you can add to any weapon, and it makes it immediately an automatic weapon or an assault weapon, if you'd like. The NRA came out against them a few years ago, and when an organization like that makes a move to ban something of that nature, it's a sign that the needle is shifting in certain ways. But, again, it's got to go back to politicians. It has to be up to governments, whether it be in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., parts of Europe, Asia, etc. Everyone has to make a move, pardon me, in, in a certain direction to ensure that the rights of gun owners, legal, law-abiding gun owners, of which there are m- many, the vast majority are, are protected, but at the same time, as you correctly pointed out, Bill, assault weapons are a completely separate issue. So if groups like the NRA can be opposed to bump stocks, which makes a regular weapon into an assault weapon, the New York Post can come out against assault weapons and call for an immediate ban. And I'm sure many Canadians would go along with both of those things now that they're either becoming aware of it or are more aware of it as time goes along. This is a sign that, at least in North America anyways, there is a movement against a particular avenue of the way people use weapons and the way they're using it, not just in terms of things that they do in their own time and leisure in their backyard, but the way they're using it against society, as we've seen in what happened in both El Paso and Dayton. And and there is a difference, and I think that has to be part of the discussion about the types of weapons, uh, and and we understand that. And I I know people that are gun owners, Michael, and I'm sure, of course, you do as well. And yes, I do. Uh, I, I, and there some are hunters, and I you know I, I not my thing, but I, if that's what they want to do, that's what the law says they can do, and I get that. And I, the yep. ones I know are very responsible gun owners. I mean, the the, the weapons are locked away, secured at, in in the proper places at the proper times. That's but right. but what we need to do is have a discussion about how somebody can assemble an arsenal such as this guy did in Vegas a year and a half or so ago, and, yes. and the, well, the biggest mass shooting in American history. Uh, the fact that they're accessible, the fact that you can go into a Walmart and buy these sorts of weapons with little to no uh, effort at all, is, is the, I think the, the, this thing needs to be discussed. And, and that brings the NRA to the table, it's got to bring politicians to the table, and we've got to sit down and have a discussion about this, instead of everybody getting their backs up and getting defensive about it and say it's got to be all or nothing at all, or nothing at all, period. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. But, I mean, obviously we have to take into account, Bill, that gun rights and gun ownership is a very different issue in the U.S. than it is in Canada. And you're right. I know lots of law-abiding hunters who have their licenses in Canada and elsewhere and do things properly, for sure. You're absolutely right. Um, I guess the big issue here is that in the United States, as you pointed out, organizations or companies like Walmart, an American can actually go in and purchase a weapon very easily. The problem is vetting and gun checks, I think, now have to be really improved quite dramatically. There are some U.S. states, as we know, where there is very strict legislation before you can actually purchase or obtain a weapon, whereas there are other states like Virginia, where the law is either very lax or basically no one seems to care one way or the other. You go to a gun show, you can easily get a weapon, as a lot of different organizations have proven, and some TV shows and radio shows have proven, too. 
So that's a problem in itself as well. But look, I think that there certainly is an answer to it. I think that society is now ready to create an answer to it. And I think that unfortunately, through all the tragedy that we've seen, as you mentioned, Vegas a couple years ago is a good example of a person who we still don't understand to this day what the motive was. It's still a complete mystery. So what we've seen now in El Paso and Dayton, where a person on the right, or believed to be on the political right in El Paso, and a person believed to be on the political left in Dayton, both did something very similar on a weekend, which shows that gun violence affects, whether people like it or not, both sides of the political spectrum, and all the horrible shootings that we've seen in Toronto, which are increasing as time goes along, they're not decreasing, the time is now, and we need action. Well, let's, let's, I know we've only got a couple of minutes left here, and I don't think we're going to solve this today, but I'm glad we're having this discussion about it anyway, Michael. Uh, invariably, the, the, the word ban comes up. We need to ban assault weapons. We need to ban, uh, ban handguns, for instance. Uh, and that, that debate's coming up again because of what happened in Toronto this past weekend. Uh, we remember the, the the summer of of the gun, of course, in Toronto a couple of years ago. Uh, I know that there's some concerns that this may be a repeat of what's going on or what did go on in those days too. Uh, is is it useful? Is it fruitful at all to have a discussion about bans, or are we going to try to, uh, I, I guess, temper this and try to find some middle ground so that we can bring more people to the table? Well, you've hit upon an extremely important point, Bill. You really have. It's the word ban. Conservatives, I can speak for because it's just easy for me because I am one. We dislike the word immensely. There's no big secret about that. We hate using it in our vernacular. We hate using it in our policies. We don't even like to put it on the table as a form of light discussion. It's something that we don't believe in because it creates restrictions. It enhances the government's control over our daily lives. It allows government to do things that we just don't believe as individual citizens that should be done. And in other words, we believe that we should be able to have the right to own a weapon or not own a weapon, the right to drive a car or not to drive a car, or whatever you wish. When you use words like that, which are very loaded, it obviously causes a lot of problems. On the other hand, we have to be fair about it, the word also works sometimes, well, in the negative, it also works in the positive, because it unites people behind something. In other words, when you say, we are targeting this because it is bad for society, or it causes death, carnage, you know, bodily harm, hurts families and their children, ergo we must remove it from society, then sometimes ban can be used as a word to unite people as well. I think the key here is that on the political left, I don't think they're bothered by the word as much. Ban is a word that they commonly use on a regular basis for everything, whether it comes from, say, buying a gun to, you know, washing your windows when it's raining. The left just doesn't, with all due respect, the left doesn't seem to be bothered by the use of this word. So, you need, so to have an effect, it needs to also have the right on side. And while the right doesn't like the word, I think we realize with issues like El Paso, Dayton, Las Vegas, um, the attacks in Florida, that gay nightclub, and various other things, I think pe the, the conservatives, libertarians, and others are starting to realize that as much as we dislike the word, as much as we dislike the theory, and as much as we would like to have this to become a broader discussion where everybody sits down at a table and tries to figure out the best solutions or the best route for success, I think we are starting to move into a world where, especially with assault weapons, there doesn't seem to be an either-or. This no longer seems to be a gray area. It's either a black or white issue, and we have to take a side one way or the other. Maybe this past weekend has, I hate to use the word trigger, which is no better either, but mm. maybe it has convinced people, I guess is a better terminology to use, that it's time to act, it's time to fix this, and to realize that for the protection of regular citizens who don't own guns and regular law-abiding Hunters, you know, ducks, you know, hunters, uh, people who hunt animals, ducks, etc. People who do it for sport or for personal pleasure, those two groups need to be protected in some fashion. And assault weapons just doesn't seem to need to be part of our life. And maybe the best thing to do, I hate to say it, is to ban them. Well, and to this point, I, I guess one of the frustrations I feel, and I know you do a lot of writing and, and uh, discussions with a lot of folks south of the border, Michael, 
Uh, th- th- a lot of people characterize this as a partisan issue, and it's not really. I mean, the, the Democrats and Republicans, for instance, on the left and the right, are a lot closer to a middle ground than a lot of people realize. Uh, most Democrats, at least mainstream Democrats, are not saying, hey, we've got to ban guns. Uh, they're saying no. we need to control these. Uh, you know, they, I know that you know in the last election, Trump was saying Hillary's going to take your guns away, and that was never the case at all. Uh, but if they ever, I, what I guess the frustration is, is they polarize each other because of this, and as a result, nothing seems to be getting done. Yes, no, and you're right, and I should be a bit more fair about it. There are obviously Democrats in the U.S. who do not believe in banning guns or banning weapons in general, assault weapons or otherwise. And in fact, many Democrats over the past few elections have campaigned on that. Yes, a lot of them are based in either the Midwest or the South, but nevertheless, they are on side at least to some extent. Um, But you're right. Look, when you put it all together... I think there are ways that both sides of the political spectrum can unite, and I think uh, opposition to assault weapons is probably the easiest place to start, or maybe the one point where they can all come together and recognize that something needs to be done here because our society, unfortunately, is starting to move in a direction that I don't think anybody would be comfortable with, where it's unsafe at times to be on the streets where it's safe at times <clears throat> to go out to a restaurant or a nightclub or a bar or whatever with your family, friends, and other ones. You're well, just getting worried about what we, you know, when we worry about things that we see all around us, Bill, I think we can at least unite to understand that if this issue is going to be resolved, the best way to do it is to find some sort of a little nugget to grab a hold of, and maybe through this terrible tragedy in El Paso and Dayton, we found it. We can only hope. Michael, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for your insight into this today. You bet. Have a nice day. You too. Michael Tobe, of course, uh, for Troy Media, syndicated columnist with Washington Times. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The uh, tragic events, of course, of the last couple of days in uh, the States especially. I, I know, as I say, we're not immune to it here in Canada, as we just discussed with Michael Tobe a few minutes ago. But uh, with the shootings in El Paso and in Dayton, it has, as you might have expected, of course, uh, sparked a a furious debate right now about gun control or the lack of gun control, about assault weapons. But there are other uh, discussions that I think need to be had, and they are having. Uh, One of them, of course, is whether or not there should actually be a law against what is being termed now as domestic terrorism. And uh, there are split camps on that issue, in fact, and and that's something that's going to happen. But another offshoot of this that's a rather interesting twist is a travel ban. Venezuela and Uruguay are warning their residents and their citizens against travel to U.S. cities following the mass shootings. They have warned their citizens against travel uh, because uh, they say uh, of the uh, heightened uh, risk of violence in some, and actually they they name a number of cities here, uh, Detroit, Cleveland, Baltimore, St. Louis, Oakland, and Memphis are on the list of cities that they're telling their citizens that, look, if you have to go there, take precautions. Uh, they say there's a common, actually both countries are doing this, but there's some commonalities in the uh, release that both of them have said. Uh, one of them is uh, this, this line here, a fundamental factor to consider lies in the inexcusable, indiscriminate possession of firearms by the population. They specifically warn people to avoid places where large crowds can gather and to avoid bringing minors to such locations. Now, to be fair, I think there's a little political tit-for-tat in, in Uruguay and, and Venezuela issuing these warnings. Uh, because the U.S. has actually warned their citizens about traveling to those countries because of violence. So that aside, though, it does raise a discussion, and and I think a very necessary discussion, about whether or not you feel safe traveling to some American cities. I mean, we're into summertime. That's holiday time. It's travel time. I know a lot of friends of ours are are, are visiting various U.S. cities. But are, are, are people getting nervous about this? And, and should we consider something like this? I mean, is it safe to travel to American cities because of the violence that seems to be occurring on such a regular basis? I want to bring uh, Barry Choi into the conversation. Barry, of course, is a personal finance and travel expert. Money we have, his uh, Twitter handle is at Barry Choi. Uh, Barry, welcome to the Bill Kelly Show. Great to have you on the show today. Thanks for having me. Uh, we've heard travel bans before, uh, travel mm-hmm. advisories from governments. First and foremost, are, are, are they effective at all? Do citizens pay attention to this sort of stuff? Or do they just say, look, at, I'm going to New York, I'm going to New York. That's all there is to it. I think over the years, uh, in general, it doesn't matter where you live, people pay close attention to these uh, government advisories. Uh, presumably the government knows more than we do, or they're looking at various factors. But you had a very good point. Sometimes it could be political. You know, they're putting a travel ban because, you know, uh, they've got a travel ban on us. Or, you know, all of a sudden you need a travel visa because they've put a travel visa on us, right? 
Um, but I think it's becoming more serious when you think about it. Working in the travel industry, when Trump was elected, you know, a few friends joked that, you know, I'm not going to travel to the U.S. anymore because of politics. I don't believe what it stands for. Um, but now after seeing all this increased violence, I don't know if it's related to the Trump administration or, or obviously gun control or lack of it. Um, but I think people are starting to be more aware and so wondering, it's like, you know, should I really be heading there? And and therein lies the problem. And I, I understand that even having this discussion, uh, it might actually just evoke some kind of latent fear that people have about these sorts of things. But mm-hmm. uh, it's human nature, though, isn't it, Barry? I mean, you know, we, the, the Vegas thing from a couple of years ago, for instance. Yeah. I mean, we, I've been to Vegas a couple of times, and you walk down the street, and there's always about 50,000 people on the street, no matter what time of day or night you're there. Uh, and all of a sudden, somebody opens fire from a, the, you know a, a tall building like this, and uh, it's the worst mass shooting in history. And you got to there's got to be a little part of you in the back of your head that says, "What if I were there? What would it be? Gee, you know, and and or what if it happens when I go there next week? If you're planning to do that but sort I of thing." I think everyone's had some kind of experience, whether it be while traveling in some kind of mass violence, or even at home when you think about it. You know, I was this close to being in a car accident. I was this close to being hit by a car crossing the street because they ran a red light. Um, you know, you can't really control these things, but to me, it's, I look at statistics, you know, you know, a month ago, people were freaking out about the Dominican Republic. You know, there was about 20, uh, quote unquote, suspicious deaths in Dominican. People didn't know why they're happening. And all of a sudden people were freaking about no one's going to the Dominican Republic. But when one day there was more mass shootings in the U S and people are still going to the U S. Uh, so to me, it's a very tricky situation. Yes. You still want to travel where you got to go. And you want to be cautious. You know, even the travel advisors say, hey, you know, be aware of your surroundings. But what do you do when you're face-to-face with someone with an assault rifle? There's not much you can do about that, right? Well, I, I can remember... As a matter of fact, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger told me, I guess this was a couple of years ago, uh, do you remember when they got the, uh, the it was a, it turned out to be a mistake, but a missile warning about an imminent missile attack uh, that right. was on a Sunday morning, and, and he and his wife happened to be vacationing uh, in Hawaii at that time, and that's, of course, where the alert was centered, and they were concerned that, that there were going to be missiles launched there. And I, I asked him, I said, well, what, what did you do? And he says, well, after being a little nervous, he says, we just finished our breakfast, because he says, what can you do? Mm-hmm. You can't run away from it if it's going to happen. <laughs> now, it turned out to be false, uh, and, and I understand. You, we've all seen those scenes of panic on the streets when things like this, imminent uh, violence is about to occur in situations like this. But how do you balance that, Barry, when you're, when you're talking with clients and talking with people that, that like to travel a lot, especially around this time of year, uh, to have that that concern about public safety, but at the same time, the, there's you have to balance that with look at you know I I can't just stay in my you know my, locked in my basement for the next six months. <laughs> um, he, you know again I like to look at statistics in general. Um, you know the odds of you dying in a terrorist attack are are less likely than you getting hit in a car and dying on your way to the airport uh, in a traffic accident. It's just the reality. So yeah, if I'm going to a certain place, uh, I might use some extra caution. Uh, you, you know, make sure things I like, hey, I'm, I'm asking my hotel for questions, or maybe, hey, safe for me to walk out, or should I be using uh, a taxi driver, or should you arrange a driver for me, something similar like that. Or if the hotel tells me, hey, I probably shouldn't be walking alone at night in the streets, I'm going to take those precautions, uh, per se. But I also find that a lot of people who are worried about those disasters that happen, or even sometimes where it's not terrorism-related. You know, years ago, there was that tsunami in Japan, and it affected uh, the power plant. Mm-hmm. And people thought that Japan was going to be radioactive for the next 100 years. Well, people still go to Japan. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Uh, the Japanese people are still alive. Uh, so, so it comes down to character. If you're the type of person who's freaked out, maybe staying in your basement is a place to vacation, right? <laughs> Well, unfortunately, and I know that you know when when people even start to have that discussion, they say, "Well, yeah, then the terrorists are winning." But at the same mm-hmm. time, I mean, we're all concerned about you know public safety and safety for our loved ones, and and I guess we have to find that that middle ground or that comfort level. Really, I guess is, uh, for instance, I used the, uh, the idea of a trip to New York, and you know, I remember that there have been a couple of terrorist attacks, obviously in New York, uh, the worst I've ever the World Trade Center, of course, that thing. Uh, and, mm-hmm. you know, I was there. I was there six months before that happened. And you're right, as I was watching the coverage that day on 9-11, I'm thinking, boy, you know, what, what I was, you know, there but for the grace of God go, you know, I in situations like this. But at the same time, I, like you say, people are still going to do what they're going to do, aren't they? I think they should. You, you know, like, kind of like you're saying, if you stop chasing stuff in these countries, you're basically letting the terrorists win. And I certainly believe that to a certain extent. But to me, it's more like, I remember for what these cities or countries, not just the U.S., I went to the Dominican Republic, I went to Egypt and Jordan while they had a quote-unquote Middle East crisis a couple of years ago, five, six years ago. I was in Korea when they were, or in South Korea when they were starting to nuke um, 
when North Korea was starting to, to nuke, nuke the South. And so I, I'm still going to go enjoy myself. It's funny, like you were saying, you're talking to the mayor and he was just enjoying breakfast. Uh, I was doing a live interview in, in South Korea with uh, one of the local TV stations and they're, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to have for dinner because it makes no difference. If it happens, it happens. <laughs> so it, it's sort of true. You kind of got need to get on with your life. And, and I certainly believe that things can happen anywhere. Another good example is last year in Toronto, we had one of the highest murder rates um, in the, for the year. Obviously, there was uh, that van attack on Young Street. I live down the street from that attack. That where the van ended is where I walk every single day with my child. So it's kind of like, you know, what if these things can happen? And there's not much you can do about it, unfortunately. Uh, so to me, it's like you got to get on with your life. You can't let fear, fear uh, take over everything. If somebody is, is inclined to do something like this, uh, do, you, do you counsel them? Do you say, look, do you guys really want to go there? Remember a couple of years ago, there was a, mm. a travel advisory to go to Mexico uh, because That's there were right. an inordinate number of Canadians seemed to be falling off balconies. And and, uh, and the poli- that was the police explanation just about every time it happened. Oh, it was just a bad accident. Well, when it happens that often, you start to wonder about this. And the government's got involved. And they understand that you know tourism dollars are impacted by this. Uh, lots of, of, of businesses can be impacted by this. So issuing a ban like this can have economic consequences for sure. Yeah, 100%. And I like to remind Canadians that uh, about like, was it 10, 15 years ago when SARS was a big thing in Canada, mm-hmm. almost every country had a travel advisory against Canada. They were uh, advising, there were sins you're not going to Canada, you could get SARS, you could die. Uh, and I don't know about you, but I went along with my daily life, and a lot of people took some small precautions. You know, they covered their mouths, they made sure they sanitized their hands whenever they could, they washed their hands on a regular basis. But the country didn't fall apart, is, is kind of what I'm getting at. So these things do happen, uh, unfortunately. So, so, like, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to live your life in fear the rest of your life? You, you know, sometimes you think about, hey, maybe I'll go to somewhere place. I'm going to go to Orlando and go to Disney World. Well, there was a mass shooting in Orlando, was it last year or the yeah. year before? It can happen anywhere, right? Yeah, and, and, and we talk about economic consequences, and I'm not by any stretch of the United Jason suggesting that, that economics should trump you know the, the cost of human life. But mm-hmm. to, to use your example about SARS, it did, that, that travel ban that was issued by so many different countries against Canada at that time had a huge economic impact on southern Ontario. Uh, an awful lot of tourism businesses got, were heavily impacted, hotels, things of that That's nature. Right. Uh, yeah. and, and so, you know, there are consequences to these sorts of things. And, and you always have to wonder, and I guess you have to find the balance. I, I, I take what's happening with Venezuela and Uruguay, as, as you mentioned, with a grain of salt, because I think it's mm-hmm. it's kind of a political, uh, you know, slap across the face because of what the U.S. is doing with them at the present time. But i got to figure that when things like this start to happen, though, Barry, uh, there are people having that discussion. Whether governments actually get involved and issue a travel ban is something altogether different, though. Yeah, and that's right. And I certainly understand some people who will um, kind of change their travel plans. A good example is I was in the Dominican Republic last month during that quote-unquote crisis. And I was talking to hotel managers there, and they're telling me that you know, some of their, their guests, they were deciding to cancel their stays. And certainly they understand that the, the, the locals were putting as many security measures that they could in place. But it was funny to hear that they were canceling um, their stays in Dominican and they're deciding to go to Mexico instead. But the joke is, when you look at the statistics, again, it's like the murder rate in Mexico is much higher than the Dominican Republic. So, again, it's just like one of those things, like, what do you do? But I think it comes down to a personal choice, right? If you don't feel safe and you're always going to be looking over your shoulder the entire time, is it worth it? Probably not. Uh, for me personally, as an experienced traveler, I travel with my wife, I travel with my daughter. Um, I almost joke sometimes with these, these quote-unquote travel advisories. Um, it's almost like a discount because then all of a sudden everyone's afraid to go. Like you were saying, the economic impact is difficult. Hotel prices go down. It's just like, I'm going to take advantage of that because in the end, I kind of pay attention to what's going on in the headlines. If there's certain areas that are a bit questionable, maybe you avoid them. Another good example that's going on right now is Hong Kong's going through all those protests right now. But it's still a relatively safe country. Most of the protests have been relatively peaceful. You could say it's a safe place to go to. Obviously, there's quite a bit of impact. Uh, The subway service could be stopped. There could be a protest at any single time. But sometimes you also got to make sure you're, you're keeping up with the local news so you're aware of what's going on. I, I guess one of the other elements of this, offshoots of this, Barry, is, is the fact that governments and local governments, I guess in, this, in many of these places, uh, have had to tailor their, their, their approach, I guess, to, to attracting tourism to suggest that, look, this is a safe place. I mean, you know, I, I know people that were concerned about the DR because of some of the violence and, of course, the number mm-hmm. of murders that had gone on there and the killings that had happened. 
Uh, but I also know that a number of the resorts there have increased uh, security around those resorts. Uh, and, and you're told, aren't you, many, many times if you go to some of these uh, these places like the Dominican Republic or some of these other places that you mentioned, uh, stay on the resort and you're going to be okay. If you go off the resort, well, you know, you're, you, you know there, there could be consequences. But it's like that in any place else that you might have traveled to as well. There are some parts of New York City or Toronto or Hamilton, for that matter, that you probably don't want to be at at 3 in the morning. That's exactly it. And that goes back to what I was saying. They talk to your hotel staff and make sure you know what's going on. Uh, does it make sense to walk down the street to, like, the shopping mall, or should you have the, the shuttle driver drop you off because it's, it's a safety precaution? Uh, you, you know, with some of these places, you know, going for a walk on the beach under the, the moonlight with your loved one sounds really romantic, but you could also be making yourself a target at the same time. Uh, that's that's the way I, I like to look at these, these things. It's, it's crazy that we're even having these discussions, but I, I like how you were saying it's like sometimes the, the government needs to say certain things to make it look like a safe place. I remember when I was in Houston last year, the city was like they were having huge image issues just more the fact that, you know, Texas went red, the tourism was down, but then they were trying to make it clear, hey, you know, our cities are very diverse. You know, we voted blue. We're welcoming the public. We want you to come. Uh, so sometimes it's also like you're getting these mixed messages if the more research you do. So it can be very tricky. And and I guess it's 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 really caused a discussion to, to occur about these sorts of things. And I, I got to think there's, there's some nervous people about this right now, and, and they may actually be rather reticent to go and in, involve themselves in some sort of travel plans. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see. I mean, obviously you track these sorts of things, but, uh, I mean, you know, summertime is the time for travel. You hop in the car and you say, hey, I want to go spend a weekend in Chicago or, or New York mm. or places like this. And I, I don't know that too many people are going to have second thoughts about that right now, because if you're used to these places and you know where you'd like to go when you travel to places like that uh you, you're aware of the fact that okay you've got to be concerned about this and, and certain things that you should do and shouldn't do or certain times a day that you have to adhere to 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 enjoy that i mean uh there's still going to be thousands and thousands of people in times square today uh, in and down broadway i mean that's new york city and so uh, you know the city that never sleeps and and despite the fact that there were terrorist attacks and successful sadly terrorist attacks that have occurred there uh People still go there, and they just they there has to be some faith, I guess, that you know something. People are looking out for us too. Some people have got our back, and and they're doing what they can, and that has to be, I think, uh, part of the discussion. Yeah, I think a lot of like obviously any place where these these uh, attacks have happened, uh, you could argue the, the security is even better. Like we talked about the DR and how a lot of these resorts are increasing their security. When I went to Egypt, the same thing. Right after the, pre- the new president was elected, uh, the security presence was higher than it had ever being before. Um, but to me, I always advise people, it's just like, you know, yeah, these terror attacks happen, these mass shootings happen, but the odds are very unlikely. What you should be more concerned about are things that could actually affect you on a daily basis. Uh, things like as simple as, you know, make sure you're not jaywalking or, or, you know, looking both ways when you cross the street so you don't get hit by a car. Or other things like, you know, petty crime. You know, like we said, there are certain areas of cities you might want to research, make sure you're not going there. Uh, you also don't want to make yourself a victim. You know, some people are still aware of the surroundings. So my cousin, she recently went to London, England, and she got pickpocketed on Tower Bridge. And in hindsight, that's the perfect place to be pickpocketed. So maybe in certain areas, you need to be paying a little bit more attention, just like Times Square, right? And, and that's maybe rule number one for anybody who's traveling, isn't it, Barry? Be aware of where you are and be aware of what's going on around you. Uh, I, you know, too often we get starstruck and, you know, you, you see the the old cliche of the person walking around there with their, well, nobody has a camera in their neck anymore. It's always on their phone. <laughs> but, you know, you're looking up, you're looking around and you're just, you're just a, a guy by, you know, what you're seeing. But mm-hmm. you need to be aware of your surroundings and what's going on around you. I mean, as you say, it could be petty crime. It could be something else that's happening. Uh, and you just keep your eyes open. Yeah, and that's the main thing. And what I also like about, you know, we were kind of saying how you can't necessarily always trust the travel advisories in certain countries, but I've always found the, the government of Canada's travel advisories are spot on. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, Turkey was a hot spot. Uh, there was a couple of terrorist attacks. They're, they're bordered by Syria. Um, but, like, if you go to Istanbul, international city, you're fine. But if you went to the government website, it said straight out, hey, avoid the Syrian border, and you're probably going to be okay. Do you know what I mean? So it's telling you specifically what to look out for. Uh, certain destinations also what you should also be more concerned about are the local diseases. Make sure you got your travel shots up to date. Uh, so to me, the government of Canada website does does a great job in letting you know of what's going on. Uh, you know, we talked about Hong Kong, and I checked recently because I was just doing some research, and they said, yeah, there's ongoing protests and things happen. But it's important for people to understand that the government of Canada, they can't predict the future. 
They're only reporting what's already happened, giving you their best advice. But no one knows what's going to actually happen uh, moving forward. Well, uh, we'll see just how much of an impact this is going to have, I guess, in the days and weeks ahead. Uh, Barry, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Anytime. Take care. Barry Choi, personal finance and travel expert. Because uh, I've heard discussions about this over the last little while, saying, you know, maybe we better avoid that. And invariably, you know, you watch the, the, the television coverage and you get the video footage and you think that, my God, the, the city is, is in terror right now. But it's it's a specific area and it's 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 tragic when these sorts of things happen. But uh, I, I, I'm just worried that people are going to overreact in situations like this. I mean, the old adage that, you know, you can't let the terrorists win. You can't, you can't just stay home and say, okay, we're not going to have uh, outdoor events anymore. We're not going to have crowds. We're not going to have gatherings. Uh, we can't do that. But we, we need to be vigilant. And, of course, we expect our elected officials uh, to be vigilant on our behalf as well. And uh, maybe that's part of the discussion that should uh, maybe be dominating some of the, uh, the the rhetoric that's going on these days because of the terrible tragedies that have occurred over the last three or four days. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It was a busy day uh, last Friday here in the city. Uh, there were meetings between the Hamilton 100 Commonwealth Games Bid Committee and visiting members of the International Commonwealth Games Federation. P.J. Mercanti, of course, is the president of the Hamilton 100 Commonwealth Group. He's also the CEO of the Carmen's Group. Uh, he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to give us an update on this. P.J., thanks for the time. Good to have you with us again today. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. Let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, what happened on Friday, uh, uh, about who was there, what was said, and, and, and basically, I guess what we're trying to do is, is uh, I'm not necessarily sure if, if the right verb here is to woo these people. We certainly want to make an impression with them. Absolutely, and we were we were delighted that we had uh, a lot of the executives from the Commonwealth Games Federation and Commonwealth Games Canada come to Hamilton and and visit our community. And it was actually a uh, Friday was the the pinnacle, the uh, finale, but it was a three day whirlwind event where where you know they came in, and we uh, were fortunate to have a great uh, community meet and greet, and we had the event attended by the mayor. Our local MPPs, uh, federal government reps, uh, Chief Ava Hill from the Six Nations was here. We had a lot of uh, a lot of the the team from City Hall here as well. In addition to you know our, our various private sector partners, educational partners, etc. So we wanted to show the the federation uh, the true spirit of Hamilton and and show them that we as an entire community are coming together uh, to explore and hopefully pursue the 2030 Commonwealth Games, which would be the 100th anniversary of the Games that first took place, obviously, here in Hamilton. So Wednesday, we had a great meet and greet. And then on Thursday, we had a 14-hour day bill where we visited various venues throughout the city, including Tim Hortons Field, which, you know, was the, was the, you know, the home of the Games uh, when it, back when it was Civic Stadium. We brought them to McMaster University. We brought them to some of our downtown venues, and then they, you know, earlier in, early in the day, we were at the Bernie Morelli Center going through the venue, the proposed venues plan, and then they asked us, "Hey, can you take us out to Bayfront Park?" And we said, "Absolutely, we will." And they, you know, so we showed them Bayfront Park, and so they got a real sense of number one, the spirit of the community, and two, the 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 you know Hamilton as a potential city to host. So you know, they they saw the venues. They used the various transportation corridors uh, and, and got a flavor of the city. But, uh, but overall, it was a great, it was a great uh, visit. They were thoroughly impressed with Hamilton. And the word I kept hearing uh, from them was passion, 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 passion. Your community has a lot of passion. You know, we could feel the energy and excitement of your people. So it was uh, certainly an encouraging visit, and, and we learned a lot at the same time. I've talked in the past when you've been on the show, PJ, about some of the executive members of, of this group that you're putting together here, and, and, and they're well-known, of course, to many people in this community. Of course, yourself as uh, president, uh, Cecilia Carter-Smith is, uh, is one of the vice chairs, Jasper, Jasper Kajavsky, uh, another one of them, Greg Maychek, who's officially retired from the city, but uh, he's he's in there, of course. He's your manager for, for this bid, and, and Greg was heavily involved in, in the past bids for Commonwealth Games and other games that have come to Hamilton as well. Uh, and, and these guys are great at, at what they do, and I, and I know that you're pleased to have them, but how do you get everybody else around the table? How did you to get this buy-in from all these other groups and, and these individuals that you've mentioned in the last little while? Well, they're all very passionate about Hamilton. You know, they understand the, the positive impact that sport and, and you know, multi-sport games could have on a community. 
so and and they all you know have a potential role to play uh, you know very strategic role to play in both the games but in the legacy the post games benefit for the community so you know we're grateful that ron foxcroft obviously uh, you know very well known uh, internationally in addition to being you know being a you know mr hamilton uh, so he's been he's been at the table and is our honorary chairperson kind of guiding us and mm-hmm. directing us we're we're grateful to have Leuna and and Mr. Mancinelli, you know, 100% behind the games, and you know, and he obviously sees the the various benefits. But uh, beyond the 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 business community and the private sector partners, you know, including many developers, you know, hoteliers, hospitality companies, we're grateful to have an amazing amazing team of of local architects, McCallum Sather, David Premi, Gary Zabrowski. They've all stepped up to help us. You know, with uh, with this preliminary phase, uh, Gowling's, you know, one of the the big law firms downtown that has international reach as well. They've got offices in Birmingham who are hosting the 2022 games and have offices in London. So they they you know they're at the table as well because they see the games as being an opportunity to spread to have uh, tentacles into various outlets in the community, the education sector, the, you know, the sporting community, the affordable housing, uh, you know, benefits and, and groups that are associated with that. So, so everybody's rallied around what the games could be for Hamilton and what they could bring to the community, community not just in the form of, of uh, physical infrastructure, but in, in social development, in, in, in cultural development, in, you know, in, in community building. Uh, so they've all bought into the vision of what this could be, and and they recognize that you know that the the new city vision that City Hall championed the Our Future Hamilton exercise. You know there there were six objectives identified as part of that strategic visioning exercise, and hosting the Commonwealth Games would support each objective. So this is where you know all of the community partners. In addition to the McMasters, the Mohawks, the Redeemers, the the, the various uh, sport organizations, including Sport Hamilton, all understand that this is more than just sport. This is about community building and using the games as a catalyst to achieve that future vision. How important is it uh, if, now that you've talked about the local end of this? But I want to talk about the international aspect of this as well. Uh, I know that uh, you know the group that was here the other day, a couple of days ago. Of course, uh, David Grevenberg, who's the CEO of Commonwealth Games Federation, uh, David Leather, Brian McPherson, uh, with the Canadian contingent, Linda Cuthbert as well. Uh, but to to build that kind of a relationship and and to get people on side like this. Now I understand that at this point that nobody's really going to commit and say, yeah, we're 100 percent behind Hamilton because it could be other Canadian cities. There's certainly going to be international competition for this, but but you still want to have that relationship with the the people that are ultimately ultimately going to make the decision. Absolutely, and they have a lot of intellectual capital that they've been sharing with us and. and Feedback that they've been sharing with us, and and while they obviously can't go out and say you know you know state favoritism for any one city, the fact that they came to visit Hamilton eleven years out is unprecedented in international games. So you could certainly see that they that they understand you know the benefit that hosting the hundredth in its in its founding city could bring, but at the same time they're being very diplomatic and respectful, but. The feedback that they shared was simply outstanding, and there's new operating models that that um, you know that the Commonwealth Games Federation partnerships uh, is 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 bringing to the table, and and you know they've got new sponsorships in kind that are going to help reduce expenses for future games. They've got you know a new ob- objective of keeping the costs down and and you know finding new revenue streams to make the games more sustainable. So they're bringing a lot of that intellectual capital to the table. They, you know, when we did the, the proposed venues tour, uh, you know, they saw things that we didn't even necessarily see, and and the, the amazing insights. And you know, like I had mentioned, Bayfront Park, they saw that as being a potential, uh, you know, hub of of, of a few different sports. Uh, and you know, they liked the proximity to to the downtown core. They liked the fact that the entire waterfront is being developed, and 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 that wasn't a part of our initial venues. Uh, proposed venues plan, but you know they saw the benefit of that. But the the great feedback from them was they you know they saw the community uh, in, and saw what it what, you know what it could be. They you know they made comments, Bill, about how green the city is and how many trees there are. And you know we showed them Burlington Street. You know when we went uh, you know between venues, mm-hmm. but they saw Confederation Park and Gage Park and you know various neighborhoods and the escarpment. So. They saw the, you know, the, the natural beauty of this community, 
and and then at the end, you know, there was a comment that David Grevenberg, the CEO of the uh, of the International Federation, said. He said uh, that our local perspective here in Hamilton has global influence and impact, and followed that up by saying the world needs a Hamilton. He, you know, he got the sense and the feeling that we are an engaged community, a passionate community. Um, you know, they saw Tim Hortons Field, their community programming that happens there. You know, we went to McMaster and they saw the sport fitness school in action. So they saw that Hamilton is a community that's alive, that's thriving. And, and they certainly see the alignment. If the, and they said if the stars align, they totally see how there's a, an amazing story to tell about how far the games have come in the last hundred years and how far the community of Hamilton has come in the last hundred years. Uh, so, th- you know, their partnership this early in the process is, is, is instrumental and crucial. Um, and they've even gone as far as saying that they could potentially be awarding the 2030 games in 2021, which would be nine years out, which would be outstanding for, for us, uh, if we're blessed to host the games, to be able to get the plan in order early and to make sure that we get it right. Uh, so they've certainly been outstanding uh, so far. What about that uh, sentimentality? To this? As you explained to us when you guys formed this group some months ago now, PJ, uh, this is all because, of course, uh, the initial games, uh, British Empire games, as they were called back then, were here in Hamilton. And that's why Iverwin Stadium, well, Civic Stadium in those days was bo- bo- built. That's why the Jimmy Thompson Pool was built and other facilities around town. Uh, but d- does that matter to the international committee? Uh, you know, the sentimentality, the 100th anniversary, as you talked about before, you know, the anniversary, the, 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 the centennial anniversary, of course, of the Olympic Games, the modern Olympic Games, was in Athens because Greece is where the Olympics originated. Does, does that sort of sentimentality play into the decision that they're ultimately going to make here? It, it only gets you so far, Bill. So obviously nostalgia, tradition, history is important. And, and obviously there is a, certainly a proud history and tradition. The first Games... Uh, that uh, that were held in 1930. They introduced the podium, the sports yeah. podium. They introduced the first athletes' village, the first travel subsidy for countries that couldn't afford it. So, so there is an, a, an impressive history and, and legacy there. But that only nostalgia only gets you so far. We need to share as part of our prospective bid. We need to share a lot of new game changing. In the same way that the podium and the athletes' village were game changers a hundred years ago or ninety years ago. We need to come to the table with the next generation of game-changing ideas that we can introduce at, at an international, you know, multi-sport games. So, so that's going to be our challenge now. We want, to, we want to figure out how do we set up our community for the next 100 years? How do we use a potential 2030 games as being innovative, you know, and inventive? Um, so, so that's going to be the challenge that we have before us before any you know, presentation to council and, and formal, you know, formal bid is done. But in the next three months, it is our goal to have robust engagement sessions. So Hamilton 100 wants to meet with various stakeholders and community groups uh, to hear from them about how the games could benefit them and provide a positive impact to them. And we also want to hear their concerns. You know, what concerns you about hosting these games and, and how can we get ahead of that and provide solutions for those concerns, you know, ahead of, you know, well ahead of, uh, you know, going down this road. So, so we want to hear from the community about, about, uh, about how we can use these games as being a true catalyst. And, and, and at the end of the day, that's going to be what the Federation um, wants to, to see and hear in a, in a new bid. You know, nostalgia gets us so far, but it's all about the new game-changing ideas that'll, that'll help us uh, lock down the games. At some point, there's got to be discussion about how the cost of the games as well. And and I know that you, you've already put some feelers out. You've told the city council right now, look at you know, put your checkbook away for now. We don't we're not looking for money from you guys at this point. How big of a role is the private sector going to play in this endeavor? Well, the private sector partners, and it's more than just the private sector. It's the it's the um, post secondary institutions. It's the sporting community. Uh, so, so you know, we're delighted that uh, that there are a handful. There's robust private sector support behind these, you know, behind these games. Uh, McMaster, Redeemer, Mohawk, Sport Hamilton, you know, have all expressed interest in being a part of this exercise and a part of this opportunity because they certainly see the long term legacy benefit that could be that could be realized. Um, but you know, we're treating it, Bill, more as an investment than a, than a cost and. And we want to make sure that we have a winning business plan where, you know, that we could present to the city that is a very reasonable, 
um, you know, operating model and and the fact that the games have various, you know, have a new division that's aimed around reducing the expenses of the games, that can help us immensely to make sure that the financial investment is is um, going to generate a positive ROI. And, you know, previous games, you know, take the most recent uh, Pan Am games in Toronto, for example. The city of Toronto realized a 10-time return on, inv- on every dollar they invested. They received $10 back in new capital, which included, you know, affordable housing, uh, included sports, uh, you know, sp- new sports venues. So we want to make sure that we make this a win for everybody in the community, especially, you know, the city of Hamilton and City Hall. So we want to make sure that these games can maximize, you know, um, you know, the, f- the future of Hamilton and, the- and that the city has a tremendous ROI, that, you know, that all the private sector and post-secondary institution partners have a tremendous ROI. And, you know, f- and financial ROI bill is just one aspect of the ROI. It's obviously the, the social, the cultural, and the city building and community building, uh, you know, uh, KPIs that we also look at achieving. And, and, and ultimately, you know, we want to make sure that those are, 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 are you know, front and center as well. Uh, you know, in 2002 and 2006, the cities of Manchester and Melbourne both hosted Commonwealth Games, and they cite hosting those games as being catalysts that changed their cities forever. And obviously, you know, we've heard of, you know, Manchester and Melbourne and a lot of positive buzz about those communities, and, and they credit the games for helping, you know, helping to, to get them to that next level. And, uh, and so we certainly want to figure out how we as Hamilton 100 and as a city, can use a 2030 games to help us, you know, springboard up to another level of, you know, of a Canadian city and to really position us to, to you know, succeed over the next 100 years. Well, I've uh, seen some of the emails over the last couple of weeks while I was away from uh, some of your partners and some of the members of your executive and, and the Tiger Cats and, and the universities, et cetera. And, uh, boy, the enthusiasm here is, is, is just incredible. So uh, good luck with this. Uh, we'll stay in touch as uh, you move down the road here. And I know there's a lot more to come. Uh, thanks so much for this today, though, PJ. No problem. Thank you, Bill. PJ McCandy, CEO of the Carmen's Group, of course, and president of the Hamilton 100 Commonwealth Games Bid Committee. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.